Welcome to the Save by Mother Earth podcast, a podcast looking at self-connection through spirituality and nature immersion. I'm your host, Heather Webster, and I'm so excited to have you here today. Today, I interview Dr. Kevin Payne, who is a social psychologist, entrepreneur, author, and skydiver, and he's doing it all with MS. This interview is sure to enlighten and inspire you. So without further ado, here's the interview with Kevin. Welcome, Kevin. It's so great to have you here today. How are you? I am delighted to be here, Heather, and I'm looking forward to our sparkling conversation. Yeah, me too. So usually what I do is kind of let you tell your story versus me telling the listeners who you are. So would you mind sharing a little bit about kind of your story and you can go into as much detail as you like? Or as little detail and share because you've had a great story of your life I was reading through and also share how it has to do with self-connection. Sure, sure. I've 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 got a goofy story. So I'll 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 hit some high points and and we'll see how it goes. Um so on the one hand, professionally, uh, I'm a social psychologist. My doctorate's in sociology and psychology. I've studied people for 30 years now. I spent 15 years as a professor. And for the last few years, I've been a tech entrepreneur and data scientist. So I've been building models about, you know, why people do what they do in, in you know, the commercial realm. And uh, because of that, I've, I've been involved, you know, in the founding team of a handful of startups, and I've consulted or advised dozens of others. Um, so professionally, I'm a geek, I study people. And that that will be important to my story as we go along. The second most important thing probably about me is that I live with multiple sclerosis. And I've had MS. I first became symptomatic in 1989 when I was in college. And as is often the case, especially back then, uh, I was misdiagnosed. And, you know, I, I, so I went, I went 17 years before I actually had a concrete answer. Uh, and they said, oh, yeah, surprise, it is MS after all. And this was after they had ruled it out, which was double surprise. So lots of fun. Uh, and for people who don't know what MS is, multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune condition. We know that now. We didn't know that back when I was diagnosed. Uh, and it's where our immune systems are eating away the fatty myelin sheaths around the neurons in our brain and our spinal cord. And so... The, the gift of MS is that since everything we do think, feel, say, passes through our central nervous system, pretty much anything about your life is fair game as a symptom. So in, in the popular consciousness, the idea is, oh, that's one of those that puts you in a wheelchair. Well, yeah, sometimes it does, but less so now than it used to. And, and so... Uh, you know, I, I walk around under my own power generally pretty well. When I get really tired, my legs, you know, may get spastic or they may go weak. And, and so I do have some of those things. But 
a lot of the symptoms that I deal with are, you know, chronic pain, chronic fatigue, and then cognitive, you know, symptoms, because uh, cog fog is, is a big, huge thing. And, and that's central to my story, as we'll find out, because as we've already established, I make my living with my brain. And when my brain doesn't work well, then problems ensue. And the third thing that you probably should know about me as we get started is I am an enthusiastic skydiver. And, and, and this is going to become crucial as we talk about how I got reconnected with myself because it was absolutely central. So long story, very short, I, I became enamored with the idea of skydiving as a kid in the 70s and and square what we call the square parachutes you know the ram air parachutes were were new at that time they were invented in the 60s and so i saw one of these yahoos at a little air show uh, that i went to with my grandmother and i was like wow because he didn't just drop out of the sky like like the World War II soldiers under the big round parachutes, he controlled it and, and he flew it like a glider and it was amazing. And he, and he spun and whirled and dove and whizzed over us and landed on target. And I was like, wow, I want to do that. And you got to remember, this is, you know, around the Apollo era and, and everybody's fascinated with everything up there. So, you know, I was one of those. So in the 90s, when I was working on my doctorate, I decided... I'd waited long enough and I was going to become a skydiver. So I found a club drop zone, which is a place where you skydive and, and a club operation doesn't do it professionally. They just, everybody pitches in. So I found one, it was a couple miles, it was, it was a couple of hours away from, from where I lived. So I had to get there and, you know, I, I took all the training and back then tandem skydiving wasn't yet a thing. So Nowadays, most people, they'll do their first skydive as a tandem. Right. And back then, well, tandems had only been in, invented in the 80s, and they weren't common. So I did all my training and went up and went out on my own for the first time. And that was just, you know, a, a, a thoroughly terrifying and yet ecstatic experience. And, and it was life-changing to see the world from that perspective. So I got a handful of jumps in and then, you know, finished, finishing a doctorate takes a lot of time and effort. And so that kind of got the way and then uh, family and kids and career. And then eventually it was health. And as my MS was diagnosed and as I went through a couple of really bad exacerbations where uh, the symptoms flare up and they become really nasty. Uh, I, I, I got to the point where I no longer recognized myself. Mm -hmm. The people around me no longer recognized me. Everything about my life was a shambles. And, and I, I was completely overwhelmed with what it was doing to me. Because, you know, in the abstract, knowing that you may face symptoms that essentially look like dementia 
Right. Uh, you know, uh, uh, that's one thing. But being on the inside and experiencing it and trying to negotiate a life through it is, is a completely different thing. And so uh, this and, and years of uh, chronic illness for my then wife, who had an advanced cancer and almost passed away from it, but was thankfully saved at the last instant. Uh, she was saved. Our, our family wasn't. And so, you know, my family had blown up. My dog even died traumatically in front of me. I, I mean, and, and my career was in shambles and I could not see a way to make my brain and my body do what I was interested in in life. So at the very bottom, I, I decided I'm going to give myself one more chance. I'm going to give myself one more chance to find myself again. And for many of us, nature is kind of the place where we find ourselves. And, and, and you know, I enjoy all aspects of nature. Uh, it's, it's a little challenging sometimes with my MS because I do have temperature sensitivity. So I have to kind of deal with heat sensitivity and then in recent years, I've got cold sensitivity too. So I've, I've got to manage it carefully. But, but for me, that, that special place where I really felt one with, with everything was flying through the air. And so I said, even though I had by this time given up on the dream, I'm going to go back to skydiving. And I'm going to figure out a way to do it. And I only had a handful of jumps beforehand. Right. So, I, you know, but when I came back, I had, I had like 13 jumps that I'd logged. So I had to go back and start all over again and, and, you know, redo the training. And normally it takes 25 jumps to get your A license. It's your first license in skydiving. It took me 47 because my legs don't exactly work right. And, mm -hmm. and if you are out of, balance or out of trim and free fall, you start whirling around and tumbling and, you know, it, it becomes really ugly really fast. So I went through a number of jumps like that, that just scared this living snot out of my uh, instructors. And, but we got it, you know, and I, and I did a lot of extra time in the vertical wind tunnels where I could have an instructor there holding my leg in place so that even though I couldn't feel my legs below my knees, I could understand what the tension felt like in the tendons behind, you know, my, my, uh, you know, my thigh. Right. Right. So I figured out the alternative. I figured out how to stand up a landing on a parachute, even though I wasn't quite certain when my feet touched the ground, I learned to feel the pressure at my knees and, uh, you know, a lot of little accommodations had to get creative. So I did that and, and I logged, this is 2019 and I, and I logged, Oh, about 140 jumps or so that year. The next year, I set a bigger goal in 2020. And I said, I'm going to log better than one jump a day through the entire year. Wow. <laughs> and I managed to log 370. And that, that's respectable by skydiving standards. And, and it also got me above 500 jumps, which was... 500 is like a, a, a milestone in the sport where you're, 
you're uh, qualified for all of the licenses in the sport. You're eligible for professional ratings. I got a coach rating along the way. And, and so I was doing this not just to reclaim a childhood dream, but because I had grown fearful of my own body and, and I didn't feel like myself again. So I thought, now, now this is where my, my reasoning is probably a little sketchy. I thought, I don't trust my body day in and day out. So if I can fling myself at the earth at terminal velocity repeatedly and save myself every time, then maybe I can develop the confidence to get in, you know, and, and, and do what else I want to do with the rest of my life. Right. Well, and it makes sense in some way because you're trusting your body to be able to say like, I'm going to finally be able to feel my body again. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, here's the interesting thing about it. I, there, for, for many years, I had no feeling below my knees. Okay. And I mean, literally to the point of, you know, one morning when my, one day when my kids were young, I was walking barefoot through the house and I hadn't yet, you know, determined that I really shouldn't be walking barefoot. So, and I'd accidentally stepped on a shard of broken glass that I didn't know about. And I walked all the way down the hall and I get to the end of the hall and my kids are at the other end screaming, dad, dad, stop, there's blood everywhere. And I look around and there's a bloody left footprint all the way down. So I, I, I pulled my foot up and I looked at it and then I started picking around sliced my hand in the process and you know blood's just oozing out and i pull out a two inch long dagger of glass wow that i had not even felt but after a little over a year of skydiving pretty much every day i actually do have some feeling in my lower extremities now it's it's noisy it's garbled it's kind of like you know spinning in an old analog radio station <laughs> where you have the but, like the little fuzz there but you can still yeah see it. Exactly. you can still hear it right right but i do get some signal and i can only attribute that to skydiving all the time and and neuroplasticity and and you know really straining to rewire somehow to get some more signal in for what i really needed it reminds me of people that might get paralyzed, but then go through PT and go through some muscles where people have to actually manipulate their legs mm -hmm. and they start to be able to learn to walk. It might not be walking like they used to walk, but it's mm -hmm. there. They've been manipulated. So the muscles and the brain start to kind of put that back together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly the same thing. So how I can't even imagine being in the pain and the fog that you must have been in at that, like, as you call it the bottom, right? And this is mm -hmm. when we start to see, I hear a lot of times, and this is what happened to me as well, is you go through that whole, I, I need to re-self-connect and get back to who I am. But it's mm -hmm. so hard sometimes at that rock bottom to be like, okay, I need to do something for myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how, do, how are you able to kind of make that switch of like, I need to get back there. Like, well, you know, my son who was oh, about 14 or so at the time, uh, one day said to me, dad, you know, you really suck at doing things for yourself. 
And intellectually, I knew that. And, and I, had, I had gotten out of the habit of self-care as we were going through all the distress of, uh, you know, his mother uh, and, and her decline with her health. And I was just trying to keep the family afloat and keep the job going and doing all those things. And, and I lost my self-care habits and obviously paid the price for mm. it. And, and, and it was especially frustrating for me because I got a PhD in people. I know better, you know? I know all the research. I've taught all the research. I, I you know, I've, I, I've done some of the research. It's, it's, but, but I had, like so many of us, gotten caught up in the day-to-day press of the little things and said, oh, I'll get back to it tomorrow or next week, or next week. But when you're living with a chronic distressing condition, you can't do that because there's no other side to catch the catch your breath on and, and then do that work. Right. And so by the time I got to it, I was in, I was in really bad shape. But you know, when he said, you really suck at doing things for yourself, I, I really paused I, and I took stock and I said, you know, I have not done anything for myself, probably in the 21st century. I mean, it really probably hadn't. And because I'm one of those people who tends to like put myself on the back burner and, and try to handle everything else. And, and, you know, I realized I was even failing then because I wasn't taking care of myself. I was failing at everything else as well. And, and so I said, well, if I could do one thing for myself, what would it be? And it was going back to skydiving. And of course, you know, then I thought, well, that's silly because I'd given up on going back to that. And then I thought, well, no, it's a, it's a big goal. And it, it, and I thought also I had spent by this time, I'd spent so long always being the expert in the room. Right. I was always the professor. I was always the consultant. I was always, you know, the advisor, whoever's coming in. And I was always the expert in the room. And, and I thought, you know, I've got to go back to something that I suck at and that I'm a complete novice at. And, and I have to find more humility in the world again. Yes. And it's not like I was walking around being all, you know, but, but I really did. I felt like I just had to, to, to handle growing back from where my body and my brain had deteriorated to. I felt like I had to become humble again and start from the beginning. Yes. You've said so many different things that I could kind of build off of that I just just so profound. Number one, listen to all the listeners out there, listen to your kids. They have a lot of wisdom. And a lot of times it's just like, oh, whatever, whatever. Like I need to take care of you. But then also I know um, some of my friends who also suffer from MS, one of the things that exasperates it or makes it worse is stress. And Mm -hmm. the fact Mm -hmm. that you are putting everything out there to take care of your family, to take care of your, your wife and take care of your, your job and all of that other stuff and not and putting away the self-care and not doing that. Right. And it's, Mm -hmm. there's so much to that. And also 
that whole idea, a lot of times what I'm talking to clients about is this whole idea of connecting back to when you're a child. And when reading mm-hmm. your things, they said like your two dreams are being a scientist and to fly. And yeah. right. You, you going back to skydiving, I mean, you are a scientist in your job, but also going to back to skydiving really brings those two back to the forefront because you have to it learn does. something new about science. It and, does. It does. And then that whole idea of taking something and being like, I need to learn something new. Right. I think a lot of times we get stuck in the everyday and what we know and our brains just become more like mush in that. And also, and then, so one of the things I've recently done was I was just like, I'm going to take a drumming class. I haven't ever picked up a drum before, but it's that same idea of I've always wanted to learn how to drum Mm -hmm. and I'm just going to go in and be the person that knows nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's uh, so powerful. It's wonderfully freeing. Yes. And, 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 you know, you get, and you were talking about the stress there and that's, that's one of the things that, that when you are first diagnosed with MS, one of the first things they will tell you is avoid stress. Now, now what that means is I want to just choke the living snot out of every single well-meaning medical professional who gives us that advice, right? Because that is exactly the wrong advice. Life is stressful. And not only, we, we don't understand, there, we, we, when we say stress, we think about bad stress. But there are two kinds of stress. There's distress, bad stress, and eustress, good stress. And all of the most wonderful things in our lives are in some way challenging, okay? Because it's not the acute stress response, it should be the challenge response. And and when we get excited or when we get fearful, same physiological response, same thing is going on, we just cognitively, emotionally frame it differently. Right. And and one of the things that, that you have to learn in skydiving is when you're in the plane and you know the first time somebody opens the door because you get to you get to the spot where we're going to exit and the pilot will flip on a, a light by the door and and then some one of the regular skydivers by the door will will shout door real loud and they'll fling the door open and so suddenly the plane is just whoosh you know full of air so like a lot of times I'm I'm that person because I'm going out first so you know you do that and then the thing that really gets people is that person you have to lean your entire body out of the plane to stare straight down to make sure that we're over the right spot. And so somebody leans out and all of the people in doing their first skydive in there, their eyes get really big. And then, you know, the up jumpers or the fun jumpers, as we're called, uh, start exiting first before the tandems. Well, you have to learn that when you're sitting in the plane, that door is terrifying. It is terrifying. But once you go through it, on the other side of that fear is a kind of joy that you have never experienced before. And both of those things are mingled right there in what I call the edge. And, and this is like, and when you live with a chronic illness or when you live with chronic distress or you know anything like that, you are constantly being taken to an edge. 
You may not recognize it as an edge, but you're constantly being taken there and you're being left there. You're, you're pushed there and you're kept there. So I call it the, the uh, you know, sometimes I'll call it the challenge relax cycle. And every day, regularly, we have to be challenged. If we want to live a good life, if we want to live a, a life that we think is good, not only in the moment, but looking back on it, we've got to be challenged regularly in all kinds of different ways, cognitive, emotionally, behaviorally, socially, you know, physically, all that stuff. But we can't live there. We then got to allow ourselves the space to come back around that cycle and rest and recover and recuperate and relax and sleep and, and all of those restorative things that we do because that's when we consolidate the gains and the growth that, that we first fostered by going to our edge. Wow. 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 <laughs> I love that. And that's like and, the, that's the first part of my book. Yes. And we will be getting to your talking about your book next. Cause I, I, when you were talking, I was just imagining how freeing it must be when you're floating above the earth. And mm -hmm. here's somebody you experience pain and discomfort throughout your day. And when there's no wonder you want to jump every day or as many days as you can, as much as you can, yeah. because you must feel so much of a lift and freeing of who, cause it's almost like what the way you're explaining it, it sounds like a very spiritual activity where you're almost outside your very body. Much so. Yeah, very much. So I, I mean, you know, on the ground, I'm falling anyway. I might as well go up there and fall with style. And really get a good view. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an amazing view, but it is. And that's, you know, people think that skydivers are like adrenaline junkies with a death wish. And categorically, those are not the people who stay in the sport. Yeah, some of them come in and try it. But the people who stay in the sport are the people who crave that that peace and that joy and that connection and that accomplishment that happens, you know, in that, that four or five minutes between when you exit the plane and you finally land under, under canopy. Wow. That's amazing. So tell us a little bit about your book. Oh yeah. So <laughs> it's called your life lived well. And it's, it's, it's got a nice, I love the cover picture yeah. on this. Because, you know, people say don't judge a book by your cover, but uh, this one, you should. And the reason why is because I had a really specific image in my mind that I wanted for the cover of this book. That's because skydiving in two ways is a really good metaphor for what we live with when we live with chronic illness. And the first is when you get diagnosed, when your symptoms are, are at their worst, you can feel like you're in free fall, like you're out of control in your own life. But when we skydive, we purposefully put ourselves in that circumstance and we learn surrender. We learn that it's not about control. It's about awareness and influence. So if I go up and I you know, am falling to the earth 120, 180, 200 miles an hour, depending on which way you're orienting your body, uh, then I, don't, I do not have control. 
gravity and the wind will win every time. They are bigger than I am. However, if I become aware, if I become aware of myself, if I become aware of my environment, if I feel that connection and I work with it, I can accomplish what I want within those constraints that are put upon me. And, and so in skydiving, you've got to learn that humility. You've got to learn that awareness. You've got to learn that real honest assessment of your own true limits. And you've got to respect them. Right. But you've got to work creatively to get as much within them and grow them carefully as you can. And so on the cover of the book, I see, so I wanted the sun behind me. I wanted the beautiful clouds. So it had to be the right time of day. It had to be the right atmospheric conditions. We did eight jumps in six weeks to, to get that one shot because the cameraman and I are falling at 120 miles an hour. And that is, and, and that shot is 5,000 feet above the earth right there. And you see what I'm doing in the picture is I've got my hands up to my forehead and I'm about to sweep them out in a big, broad gesture. Now, in the prologue, I tell people what that is because that's an important metaphor for when you pick up this book. Awesome. In skydiving, in skydiving, that's called the wave off. And that is the point in the skydive where you're going to deploy your parachute. So what you're doing is you are telling everyone. So like at 5,000 feet, my life expectancy when that picture was taken was 27 seconds. Wow. 27 seconds from then, if I did nothing, I would have impacted the earth and the earth would have won. Wow. And so, so at that point, I'm saying in the face of certain death, certain destruction, certain you know cataclysmic results i am asserting myself and i'm saying i'm going to take action to save myself at this moment and i want people to feel when they pick up this book you are now taking action to save yourself and this book isn't about one particular path one particular way one particular thing i don't believe in that because nobody's path is the same but what the science can tell us is that I can show you how to more easily and effectively pick out your own path. And that's what the book is about. Right. I love that metaphor too, of like, this is like that symbol symbolism of that movement and yeah. that like, now I am doing it. And so can yeah. you give the listeners a couple tips that might be in the book that they'll, the, you have to pick up the book um, to really get all the details. And But are there a couple tips that you can give the listeners around like self-connection or kind of getting themselves back into a space where they might be able to overcome something they're going through? Yeah, I think, I think the, first, the first thing that we have to understand and the first thing we have to accept and realize is that each of us is going to be our own biggest obstacle. And, and each of us has got to learn to get out. Paradoxically, you've got to learn to get out of your own way so that you can find yourself. And, 
And that means you've got to be kinder to yourself. You've got to extend grace to yourself because there will be all sorts of parts of, you know, in your, in your mind. And I call them, you know, uh, like a little Greek chorus because there's, there's not actually one critic or one judge in our mind. There's many. And, right. the, and they all have different, they all have actually have good reasons for being there, but we've just got to understand what they are and, and keep them in their place mm-hmm. and, and not make them feel like they're being pushed down. They've got to feel like they're being honored and that they are being allowed to do their job also. And, and so we've got to be kinder to ourselves to begin with. And, and we've, so that's like the first thing. The first thing, and, and the first thing is, you know, and so when you are not being kind to yourself, then don't clamp down on yourself and say, oh, I, you know, and that you failed and give up on it. You acknowledge it. You say, yeah, and I expected that, and that's okay. And I acknowledge, you know, your critique. Thank you very much. Now let's move forward. Right. So you, you, you've got to cultivate this, you know, in improv, I grew up in the theater. And so uh, one of the first things that you, that you learn in improv theater is the yes and response. If you're doing an improv scene with, a, with another actor, then they're going to give you something and you can't deny it. You can't work against it in that scene. You've got to say yes. And you've got to accept it. And you've got to help, you know, build this world for the audience and add your own thing right so your inner critics you've got to say yes and there are other ways we can look at it as well and you know there are ways that we can take your critique into account and keep going forward right similar how we want to acknowledge the other people around us that are physical people we want to make sure we're acknowledging the internal conversations because they're there because something happened in the past that might be, they're trying to protect you. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, one of the things that we do as humans, that is, is really fascinating scientifically and, and also just to experience it, but we can, we, we are narrative creatures. We, we understand the world through story and the most important story that we construct is our identity. And that's the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. And, and if you've got the wrong voices in your head contributing too much to your own story, then you're bound to find yourself off track. Yes. I love that being able to say, like you talked about for improv, being like, yes, and... I'm also, so a lot of times, one of the things that I've talked about kind of in this podcast is the sense of a lot of the women I work with and in for clients and myself, I, there was a point where I felt like a complete failure and, and it was going through a divorce and all of that. And I was just like, but if I had that, like, yes, and, and yes, or, or yes, but right. Yes. But I was able to finish a master's degree. I was able to go to South Korea. Like there's so many things I've been able to do that are not failures. And so being able to kind of use that, that's what I've been kind of saying with the clients of, but what else could you, what have you been successful at? So it's almost doing that same exercise 
But in the moment, being able to say, if you say to yourself, I'm a failure, being say, yes, but <laughs> like being able to switch that a little bit. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's, it's really important. Yes, and let's go on and do this other thing in our lives. And for me, because I'd, I'd racked up so many no's in my life and so many things that, that I was frustrated about and I was depressed about and I was disappointed about, I needed a win. And it needed to kind of be a, a spectacular win. And, and, and for me, that was... I'm going to figure out a way to be, even though I'm a middle-aged guy with, with multiple sclerosis, I'm going to figure out a way to be a serious skydiver. Am I ever going to be a great skydiver? No. I need to be half my age and, and uh, have full control of all my faculties. That's okay. I but can, you're further I, along than anybody else who wants to do it, right? Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a safe skydiver. I'm a, I'm a fun skydiver. I, I contribute to the jumps that I'm on. I can help educate and train others now and, and contribute to the sport. And, and that's, that's all really good. And that's all more than I feared I was capable of. So, so the thing that I got out of that fundamentally was if you've got the confidence, you know, born of, yes, I have, I have flung myself at the earth hundreds or thousands of times and I've saved myself every single time. That's a lot of confidence to carry into the rest of your life. Right. That's how and, I feel when that, I get to the top of a mountain that yeah, people are exactly. like, this is the hardest mountain. And I was just like, oh, I loved it. It felt somewhat easy today. Right. It's like that when you get to that top, whatever it is that you're trying to reach and you're able to do it. And if you can repeat it, like you're talking about, it just kind of amplifies. And that's, and yeah, and that's, that's, that repetition is, is really important because when we're building our capacities, you know, people say, well, why do I want to exercise? Why do I want to eat right? Why do I want to do all those things? Well, the real simple reason is. If you don't continually revisit your edges, then you will lose your quality of life that you feel you want to have. And, and so when we move, when we take stock of what we're putting into our bodies, when we spend time to be out in nature and reconnect and to connect with other humans and animals and life in all its forms, right? Well, that builds our capacities. It builds our edges so that we can keep coming back to it and, and we can regularly do these things, not just go all the way to the edge and completely trash ourselves because we pushed ourselves too far and then, you know, be without anything in our lives as we're trying to recover for a while. No, we want to regularly build up that capacity to challenge ourselves and, and enjoy that experience and sometimes fail. And that's okay because failing is part of being at the edge. You know, it's, 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 Consistency is the last thing that comes with learning. Right. So, and, and, 
but then pull back and enjoy and reflect and recover and grow and then go back out again. Awesome. I don't know about all you listeners, but I just wrote down, revisit your edges. I'm going to be putting that up somewhere in my house um, and quoting you, Kevin, um, because well, there's, you. that's an amazing visualization right there, right? Like everybody mm-hmm. can visualize an edge of a cliff yeah. and be able to be like in that feeling you feel when you get to that edge in the feeling of like, oh, can I get a little bit closer? Right. And so when you're talking about revisiting the edges of revisiting, like something that you're trying to achieve and like trying to get closer and closer and closer um, until you get to the point where you're, you can see everything in front of you um, and the vast. Yeah. And I want to emphasize, you know, it's like you're being on top of a mountain or me jumping out of a plane. Those are like obvious edges. Right. Okay. And, and pretty much everybody would, would say, yeah, those are edge experiences. But, but what I want to emphasize, too, is that edges are all around us. Yes. And a lot of edges are really close and really small and really, you know, in here. And we may even be embarrassed that they're edges for us. You know, there, there's some days when, you know, I got MS. My hands don't work real well. And so I'm trying to figure out how to get that day's medicines into my mouth. And that's, that's a really small embarrassing humiliating edge right you know that that i should be taking i should take that for granted that's not a big deal well it is sometimes Mm -hmm. and and i have to acknowledge it so that i can then deal with it right yes and and you know the and sometimes the edge is just sitting there silently fuming a few feet from the person in the world you want to connect with the most okay Go to the edge, communicate. Yes. Right. I see that it's, a lot with clients where they're like their edge, their humility, their humility is around the, like they just have never taught how to cook. And I'm mm-hmm. talking to them about eating healthy and they're just like, yeah, but I don't even know how to cook an egg. Right. And so, or like the, when I wanted to sign up for the drum class, my edge was literally just like hitting that button. And it was just like, oh, do I do it? Do I not? Oh my gosh, I'm going to embarrass myself completely, but I really want to do it. And it was just this like, yeah, so I could see like every, every moment of every day, there's something that could come up that would be something you have to overcome or experience in a way that could be, well, almost like the, you know, those pills are going to make you feel better, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you have to get through that obstacle of actually being able to open them. Right. And, and that's one of the things that, that confuses us sometimes is in order to get something done, it's got to go through a lot of these gates, right? So you, you've got to get through the cognitive gate, how you're thinking about it, the emotional gate, how you're feeling about it, the behavioral gate, the physical gate, the social gate, right? And, and you may be easily able to negotiate most of those, but just one little part is your hangout. And now you get embarrassed and, and, and you start feeling self-conscious about it. But you have to understand that all of those capacities have to be developed. And knowing something is not the same as the understanding of living it or the success of doing it, right? Those are different. You have to go through those and you have to build those as well. Wow. So I could, 
talk to you forever because you're just fascinating to talk to, but I want to be <laughs> cognizant of your time. Where can listeners find you? Where can they find your book as well? Yeah, they can go to yourlifelivedwell.co and they'll see the, you know, the information on the book. And there's a, there's a free preview of a hundred pages that everybody can download if they want. And, and so, uh, uh, there's the links to the episodes of my podcast, which is usually just me yakking and being inter- informational, uh, and, uh, seminars that I do and webinars and, you know, other things like that. And, and, um, you know, sign up for the list and, you know, get all the goodness. But basically what I do is I, I devoted my life to trying to, to help those of us who live with chronic conditions those of us who are caregivers and loved ones for living with chronic conditions. And you gotta remember over half of all Americans now have at least one chronic diagnosis. 18% of us have five or more chronic diagnoses. Right. And then I spent a lot of time dealing with medical, therapeutic, health, wellness, fitness professionals, helping them build their understanding of the cognitive, behavioral, social aspects you know, so that they can do a better job delivering their core expertise. Right. Right. And for the listeners out there, just because your loved one doesn't have a diagnosis doesn't mean they don't have a chronic condition. So you betcha 17 years. I, you know, didn't have my, my literally my, my former wife when uh, she was, we got the diagnosis of late stage three kidney cancer on a Friday a day before Christmas, two days before Christmas. And, and then on a Monday, she had the kidney taken out and they said, oh, you're cured. And then they also said, oh, by the way, it had been growing in your abdomen for 14 years. Wow. Wow. And she probably had some symptoms, but didn't, they weren't yeah. big enough to really. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that's a whole nother podcast. Yeah. I mean, she was almost dead. She was obviously dying. For yeah. the last couple of years. I mean, you've been around people, you know, who are, are going, I you know what it looks like. And right. she obviously was. So uh, yeah, if it, if it's, that's, that's why, you know, in the, with the book, it's, it, the subtitle is the, the science of crafting a good life under chronic distress, pain, and illness. So you Which may have everybody. a, well, pretty much uh, at one time or another. Right. Um, but what I was interested in was There's so many people who've written books on how to live a good life. I was interested in a different question. How do you live a good life when there's something intrinsically bad in the middle of your life that you can't get away from? Right. Yeah. There's, I have kidney disease and there's certain things that I just can't do. Um, Mm -hmm. And so for all you listeners out there, definitely check out Kevin, come find a way, check out his website. It's co.com. But I will put put all, like all you listeners know, I always put it in the show notes. So go to the show notes, click on that link um, to check out more about Kevin. But Kevin, thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you so much, Heather. It's been a delightful conversation. I've really enjoyed it. It really has. Thank you, Kevin, for being on the Save by Mother Earth podcast. What a amazing interview with so many takeaways. I don't know about you, but I took many notes during this interview, including 
getting to your edge, overcoming that edge, falling with style, looking at skydiving as a metaphor for life. There's so much within this hour with Kevin. So thank you for being here. And to all of the listeners, thank you so much for tuning into the Save by Mother Earth podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave a rating and review, which helps keep this podcast going. Until next time, sending off with love. Take care.